Welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining us for another reading meeting with Mark and Molly. We're happy to have you today. Thank you for taking time out of your Sunday to join us for these fun conversations we've been having. Mark and I have been having a really good time, I think. Right, Mark? I think so. Mostly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, welcome to everyone again. Um, so we have another lovely discussion planned today. Um, our, our guest is Dr. Deborah Glazer. Um, Dr. Glazer is really um, one, our discussions today is turning to teacher education and connecting research to practice. And Dr. Glazer has just done, I think, really remarkable work. Uh, She's been at and, this for a long time. So. I've been at it for a long time, and really, uh, she's best known, I think, for her 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 web uh, site and and blog, um, Top Ten Tools, and that's how I encountered her work. And and really, I thought it was a, a terrific resource. You know, you like to be able to recommend resources to people that um, they can rely on, and uh, you know, in in talking to Deb, um, uh, she certainly has a lot of expertise and has. Um, uh, continues to gain uh, uh, knowledge about uh, how to communicate information about, that's relevant to instruction in reading. Uh, she was just saying, you know, and learning new things during the pandemic because of the particular circumstances that that challenges that that presents for, for instruction, uh, teachers, children. So um, we're really glad to have her today. And uh, thanks for being with us. Um, Deb, um, maybe, maybe we could start out and you could um, say a little bit about um, your background and how it is that you came to develop uh, Top 10 Tools. When I say Top 10 Tools, I mean the website, the course, the other materials that you have, the whole, the whole thing. Um, so um, how'd you get there and uh, how, how's it been going? Thank you, Mark. I'm really excited to be here today and it's such an honor to to be here with one of my favorite researchers, you, uh, and all of the people who are attending. Well, first of all, I'm Deb Glazer, and um, I am first and foremost a teacher. I started teaching in the 70s, and uh, I was very fortunate when I first started teaching because I was teaching in a school that was involved in uh, research, early research, coming from the University of Oregon, marched in and all those folks up there working on CBMs and how, what we could learn from using the CBM as an assessment. And I was involved right from the very beginning with uh, explicit systematic instruction and um, uh, the, uh, through, through the University of Oregon. And uh, I was a special ed teacher, resource teacher and did that for 20 some years before uh, starting a dyslexia center, the Lee Pesky Learning Center here in Boise, Idaho, a sister center of the Stern Center in Vermont, uh, where I pro developed programs for children with dyslexia, but also began my work with professional development. Um, and it was during that time I was the principal author of one of the very first state literacy initiatives here in Idaho. 
And as part of that initiative, the requirement was for teachers in the state, K through eight, to complete professional development that was based in the findings of the National Reading Panel. This was in 1999. And so I invited Louisa Motes to come and spend the day with me at the Lee Pesky Center and help me design the professional development that would be the professional development for our state. And that kicked me into the world of professional development. And so I decided um, at that time, rather than teaching at the university, would be to stay in the field with teachers um, and work with teachers through in-service to continue, continually update uh, their professions as a reading teacher through um, new knowledge and practice that we was continually, we were continually learning more and more about. I uh, was a trainer on for years and years uh, with um, going out into the field, talking to teachers, training teachers, and there was always a feeling of concern when I left because the word I got back from teachers was, oh, that knowledge is all very well and good, but what do I do with it in my classroom? So that transfer of the knowledge to the practice of the conceptual to the procedural in our world as reading teachers was very difficult. It was complex. How do we make help that happen? And that was the beginning of my building this course, the reading teachers top 10 tools with that very strong purpose and target learning in mind was to help teachers bridge the knowledge about how children learn to read to their practice. And um, I built the course around the major conceptual models and uh, included classroom videos to help teachers see and hear what instruction is like when we design and deliver instruction from that platform of strong knowledge. So in a nutshell, maybe and, a big nutshell. That's yeah. <laughs> and, and and you have that's lots of materials. Yeah, no, it's a big nutshell. Uh, and and um and those videos, I mean, I just have to say, like, when I got into this world, started working with Mark on these issues of translating and seeing what's out there, the professional development, those videos are one of the things that teachers would often bring up is like really helpful to really see that, that that's like how they feel like they learn, how they know what to do. And, and really, those videos seem to be a unique and really helpful piece for a lot of teachers. Yeah. And the nice thing about an online format is we can continually change, update, take out, put in new um, content. So uh, we can continually be updating and keeping it current for teachers. So I think one of the issues that's on a lot of people's minds is about the connection between uh, research and practice and um, uh, how, to, how to do that how to make such connections effectively and, and how to know uh, that you're doing something that's likely to be a benefit, your, your kids, your students. And I guess I, 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 I guess I'd start by asking how much, how do, how do you make use of research in, for example, 
in um, setting out the materials that's in each of, under each of your tools. For example, um, uh, you know, there's one on oral language, which is, I was really, really glad to see as, you know, number, number two, because um, oral language, both, you know, before the child reaches school and then in school um, is just really an important uh, uh, driver of, of reading and many other things. And, and it's also a big source of individual differences. Children differ along this dimension. One of the things that you mentioned in your materials is um, the need for oral language activities in, in school, uh, not just uh, reading, not just spelling, not just writing, but also a spoken language. And, and I think this is really on the money. But could you say something about uh, the relationship between research and the particular kinds of recommendations that you make about, for example, spoken like oral language activities that teachers, um, you, you tell teachers about. I love it that you, that you pulled out the language piece because that was very purposeful in having that right up front in the tools. And the reason I do that is because when I design professional development and any of the viewers, your, your visit, visitors today who are in the world of developing professional development, these are just some things I've found and I'm sure it probably confirms the work that you've done as well, is that we have to start somewhere where teachers are comfortable. Hmm. And most teachers are very comfortable with language, talking about language. So I start the tool by asking, what is a language-rich classroom? And I learned right away where, where teachers are in their development of knowledge and of the research and practice, when their responses vary from a language-rich classroom is where there are a lot of books, where we have labels around the room. And my understanding right away is, okay, this is a teacher who's very comfortable with building a print-rich classroom. Yeah. And so then we quickly move into, well, what language are we talking about? And we talk about the components of language. So they quickly learn that we're talking about a language-rich classroom has elements of phonology and orthography, yes, but syntax and morphology and pragmatics, uh, the multiple components are all a part of what, what we do. So hook them and validate teachers where they are with their understanding because all teachers, no matter what um, platform they come from in teaching reading is we want our, our students to succeed. And if they are attending the, this Topton Tools or other professional development that is based in the same um, research, then uh, they're there for a reason. And it could be because the course is a uh, required course they have to take. Those are the teachers that are harder and more difficult to bring on board or the teachers who are seeking that information and that knowledge. So I think one, one point is that um, a lot of people don't have a clear distinction between uh, written and spoken language and that these are actually, um, yeah. of course they're um, overlapping and, and they are different expressions of the same thing, but they work. So very, very differently. And, um, but, but so oral language is important. We, you, what, we can all point to studies showing that the amount of language, spoken language and variety of spoken language that children are exposed to influences what they learn. 
That's right. Kids learn from from experience, right. um, and that that there are differences there, and that um, uh, my concern is that's something that's malleable. That's something that can be affected by changing kids or or, or adding to kids' experiences, and and uh, that 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 can happen in school, um, but. On the other hand, you visit schools in which it's very quiet, children are not encouraged to talk, they're really supposed to pay attention and um, be listeners, and, um, and, and, and the notion of languages, as you say, it's really print-based. So, um, so what do you recommend for, for um, a kindergarten or first grade teacher in terms of spoken language activities? in terms of the actual classroom activities based on this research and what's the connection there? Is that your, your judgment as an experienced um, uh, practitioner and, or an observer? Is that, are the particular things that you recommend um, um, suggested by particular research findings? Uh, how much of a jump are you making from the research findings, which are of a certain sort, to specific recommendations for teachers? That was a question with a lot of levels. Okay. Take any of them. <laughs> Mark's thinking at many levels at once. It's a lot. I know, the, the mind of a researcher. <laughs> no, I think we're all on this. Everybody's. No, 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 no. You don't have to be. Find the, the key question there, right? Yeah, so, you do. Um, I think I'm going to go back to Socrates on that one. You want to ask me what I think? No, so Socrates oh. knew what was going on when his his teachers, the, the, his students, yeah. he said, you've got to put into words what you know. Okay, I'm not saying he had the scientific research around all that, right? <laughs> but you have Oak Hill and Kane, and we have other researchers who have looked at comprehension and helped us understand. And it, this is what really means a lot to teachers too. It gives them an angle that they can, that they perhaps have not really taken advantage of before. In developing language, do it within the environment of your classroom around the experiences the students have and are having. It might be books they read, it might be what happened out on the recess uh, playground, it might be um, a, an interaction with a friend, maybe a conflict. Put it into words and assist your students to do that. So when we understand the components of language, we know that we can work on building syntax through those conversations. We can work on building vocabulary. We can um, uh, we can work on the pragmatics. You know, in this kind of a situation, what voice do we use and what words are appropriate? Uh, there's there. There are ways to make it meaningful for teachers within the world that they know and they're living in. Well, let me just so try. Language to... is so beautiful because it has so many connections to uh, various components and can play out with, you know, in so many different ways. But it's the teacher's own verbal behavior in classrooms, too, that I struggle to convey to teachers. What language are you using? What language are you modeling? What words do you use? And Indeed. I give them a set of academic vocabulary terms that are considered to be the most prevalent in across content areas. But if we use those regularly, we have a wonderful avenue for teaching vocabulary implicitly by using it within this environment. 
So let me un unpack this a little bit more as an example of a bigger, broader issue. So there is a huge amount of um, very good basic research about how children acquire spoken language, factors that influence their acquisition of spoken language, the range of things they learn to say, um, the rate at which they acquire various kinds of knowledge, things that happen when you're exposed to more than one language, things that happen when uh, there are other language, um, other kinds of language variation around. Uh, this has all been studied in a huge amount of detail. Quite a lot is known. We can say very firm things about how kids acquire language, and indeed it points to ways to promote development. Okay. Children show up on the first day of school and their spoken language is in different places for a variety of reasons. Maybe the child's still learning English. Maybe the child is coming, has to learn more about school English. Maybe the child, for various reasons, children aren't all at the same place. We can recognize this and say, well, look, children are great spoken language learners. They just need to have the experience. They need to have the input. They need to use language communicatively. And that's something that continues in kindergarten, first grade, et cetera. Now, all that's really supported by research. The further question is, okay, as the teacher, and I don't think only teachers are responsible here. We've got principals and superintendents and people who are in school psychologists and other people who have an influence, but let's just talk about teachers. Okay, the research is clear. You can build language through experience, use, interaction. What does that say in terms of classroom practices? Well, one thing it does is it says what not to do. It says, if you have a classroom in which you're valuing print over speech and, and really thinking of it as something separate, that's a mistake. If you're, if you're in a classroom where you're, where you're valuing control and quiet over spontaneous speech, interactions, discussion, that's a mistake because those are the kinds of activities that kids are going to learn, expand their knowledge of spoken language via, the kinds of things that you're talking about. So is there solid research that speaks to something that should happen? before the kid gets to school and at school? Yeah. Does it speak to things that teachers could do to promote development in this area? Yeah. Does it say exactly what the teacher should do on a given day in their classroom with their kids? Not exactly. But to, to me, that's where a teacher's own expertise and knowledge of their particular situation has to come in. So I think the research does speak exactly to something that's really important and in many places it's overlooked, the importance of spoken language development and interaction. And I'm a little bit unclear about the concern that the research doesn't go, go far enough. There's really quite a lot to build on there. What do you think? Oh, I think my goal whenever I'm working with a group of teachers is to give them enough to ask those questions. Yeah. It's from a knowledge platform that we can ask the questions that are going to lead us to make those very critical instructional decisions. Yes. And you could look at Rosenshine's 17 principles of effective instruction and every one of those has language built into it. So how is the teacher using language to review content? How is she engage, he or she engaging children in the, the use of their language to review content for one, you know, um, 
the student response yeah. built into several of those. So yeah, yeah, I think that the, the teachers have to know enough to ask those key questions that are going to guide their instruction. And then or I think one to ask the question, recognizing I don't know the answer. Right, and and I can rec say, look, I know that this is very important. I know it's an area we haven't given enough attention to. Of course, it's a huge country, and not every classroom is the same. But there there is this. Uh, importance about spoken language and spoken language differences that I think is under, un, isn't, isn't, doesn't get enough attention. Yeah. I is the research clear on that? Yes. Does that suggest things not to do? Yeah. Does it suggest paths forward? Well, yeah, I, it, I think that's where practitioners, researchers, other people can get together, expert teachers, who, who have, have ex, uh, a lot of experience in a variety of settings drawn. I think it's there that we finally get, you know, the last mile. Yeah. We finally yeah. figure out the exact things to do in that yeah. classroom for those kids. I think you're hitting, yeah. One of the things came to my mind right now when I was listening um, to what you were saying, and that's around code switching and our yeah. dialectical differences with our yeah. children. So the, the word is out there, we've got to teach code switching. And I am still not sure how to do that. I mean, um, no. certainly through our modeling and through the orthography, we can point out the precision needed to read a word that I don't speak in that way. Yeah. Also, the, all the work, these young children who do speak a strong dialect and when they have, they're listening to standard English and then to convert that into their dialect and repeat it back like um, Julie Washington's work. It's, so, that's, that's a that for me, for language, that's a really big place for us to go right now and we need help. Okay, I got a suggestion. So Julie and I have, have finished a paper that's gonna be an American educator this summer, which is exactly about these issues. And, and uh, it says things like, what do you do if a child's language, the language that they're using in the home, differs from the language that's expected in the classroom? For example, the way they talk is somewhat different from the way in which the books are written. Mm -hmm. It's a very confusing situation for people. It's a difficult situation for teachers who don't know whether it's their role to co correct the speech of someone or or, 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 or try to get them to change from how they're speaking to another way. We discuss these issues right. and the sensitivities involved and also what you can do. And, and oh, we're all gonna look forward to that. I think I remember seeing that that was coming out and American educator articles are so teacher friendly. They are, it is. And, and also we recognize this is a these are tough, tough questions. I think one of them though is, um, it matters a lot and you, you can't just pretend that the issues aren't there. We need to deal with them. And if there are things that we can do, again, um, uh, I'm sorry to go off on this. It just happens to be something I feel really, really passionately about. And we, we do have this paper coming forward. I sympathize with people who just don't wanna feel like it's their job to really change someone to talk more the way they do say. Uh, yeah. We discuss this and, you know, learning the dialect that's really necessary for school doesn't mean giving up the dialect that you already have or valuing it. Uh, and uh, any more than, you know, when you learn English, you, you have to give up, you know, know, the Spanish that you know or something like that. I, I don't want to go on about this. It's, it's the kind of thing where um, it's a tough area. It's a sensitive area. 
there is more research to build on, and there's there's a, there there's there are many things we can do. If the if I could just say one more thing about this, I mean, I don't. How does it figure in 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 what you tell? how you view reading and how what you tell teachers. So what I'm concerned about is a lot of materials don't work well for kids who happen to speak somewhat differently. So we, we design all these materials. It's true of assessments. We design assessments. They don't actually work the same for all kids. I'm afraid I've said this probably on two of the previous programs. Uh, but um, so that's a way of dealing with variation among kids that I think needs a lot more work. And again, there's research to build on. And then how it's going to turn into actual practices. Well, we have some suggestions and there's some don't do this kinds of things that we know uh, would be, be counterproductive. Figuring out the best practices is still, a, is still a work in progress. I mean, isn't it similar to kind of like, I've just been thinking about the, the expert teacher comment about the, you know, the people that are out there doing it or the Debs program. I've just been thinking a lot about scaffolding and having conversations about scaffolding for kids in the classroom. And now I'm thinking about scaffolding for teachers and just thinking about how top 10 tools is one of the reasons it's so useful is like you are simultaneously trying to build knowledge and change your practices. And that's a lot to do at once. And so having expert teachers, having somebody like Deb, having things to model your practices off of as you're getting started, sounds like that would be really helpful as you're getting to the level of knowledge that you have to have to, like Deb was saying, to ask those tough questions, to think about it more critically, what you're doing, that having at least like kind of a baseline diet of these are the things that I know are, you know, good things to go off of. And maybe that is something for the, when thinking yeah. about the code switching instruction, there are teachers who have probably figured this out or, you know, have, have realized that, that this is something that's happening in their classroom and, and has, you know, found ways to help kids and finding those teachers. Mm -hmm. And validating, and I know there are a lot of adult individuals out there who are very successful academically who worked through all of that on very mm -hmm. independently on their own and may have some real insights as well. So that's one certainly very incredibly important area that we as a nation are coming to, to have these conversations about that have needed to happen for some time. And that's what I mentioned a little earlier. That's one of the beauties of an online course is that I can yeah. create a greater emphasis and provide more direction for teachers in the course um, as these um, uh, instructional issues come up. Um, but Mark, one of the things you've mentioned before um, is a concern you have about oversimplification of the science. And I can certainly understand with a mind like yours and Oh, you're, all that you have put into the, the research that you do, that you would have this concern. In classrooms, though, I think we have to start out simple and build. Yeah. If we stay oversimplified, that's the problem. But if we don't continue to build on those basics and, um, and we leave presentation, we leave the procedural out of it, then we're doing more harm than good, I think. So let's talk about that because, okay, I know your, I know top 10 tools through your, your website. I haven't taken the whole 
Well, of course, and and but you you have a wealth of information that you provide. It's clear what kind of point of view you have and the things that you're emphasizing and the rational how you've rationalized the organization and so on. And and you know themes that that you that you uh, care about, like putting the pieces together, comes across. But um, uh, how 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 much how much do teachers need to know and and how how much do kids have to be taught so you have you have um, sections about various things and um, I, I see a lot of discussions about like phonics and, and spelling you know how much teach a lot of it teach a little bit teach a lot a lot of it uh, where you you explain the concepts to people and you um, make the connections to things that need to happen in classrooms. Do you speak to the issue of how much is enough and how much is too much? Um, well, if you say how much do teachers need to know, that gives the impression that there's an end to knowing and there is no end. Yeah. What we can learn because every year, every a, a new group of students, every student presents another challenge for us or inspiration for us and there is no end and so what we're continually working toward as teachers and I think it's the most honorable profession to be a reading teacher yeah and what we're continually working on is that seamless application in our instruction that's a seamless between the knowledge and the, the conceptual and the procedural I call it coming together yeah and we're making those decisions on the fly. As our students respond, we're continually, I, I, I've used this analogy before, you, those of us who remember Mary Poppins and you know Dick Van Dyke going up the stairs and down the stairs with his little penguins, that's the way we are as teachers in a way, and that we're making our way up these stairs, but then, oh, we have to backtrack a little bit and, and repeat something and, and uh, uh, reteach it and then we can head up the stairs a little bit further but no my observations and my analysis is telling me I need to go back even further I mean there, there's this continual juggle that we do yeah in, in classrooms and that when it happens seamlessly it is a beautiful thing and, and that's our goal so we give people we want people to have tools I mean this was always the way I thought of it too you know the research is really the idea of conveying some of these ideas that have come out of research is just to give people material to work with is as they go about doing what teachers do, which is um, instruction and, and leadership in the classroom and, and guiding children forward. Uh, so it is literally, I mean, it is a form of giving people tools, resources, and so on, so that they can do their jobs, which are putting these things together seamlessly, as you say, uh, in ways that are effective for, for kids. And they're not doing their jobs alone. That's another really important point that I want to make, is that that collaborative model in schools is so important. And having instructional leaders, your principal, even superintendents. Um, there's a superintendent I just recently met in central Washington. Um, I don't think he'd mind if I mentioned his name, Paul Gordon, who is, blows me away. He is a superintendent in a school district who understands the reading research. Yes. And he told me that one of his most important jobs is to make sure that his school board understands 
the science of reading as well, because he said superintendents come and go, the board members stay. And they're going to make sure that another superintendent who comes in is going to continue the work that has been started and is happening yeah. in the school district. So oh, if it starts at the top and it filters down, you've got this, um, the mandate, you've got the expectation, you've got the support for implementing the knowledge and the practice that is going to ensure our students have the best advantage possible to learn to read and to write. Indeed, it, it is not just a one level, teacher level um, uh, 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 effort, uh, though of course teachers are crucial. Um, it, 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 it's, I, I view it as coming from the bottom up, which are teachers and parents and, and kids, and, and from the top down, which is people who set policies and decide on curricula and decide on what we're going to focus on this year and, and so on. Um, what, um, what, how long does it take someone to take your course? Uh, it's a it's approximately 45 hours of um, on screen time to complete the course it's uh, I've got three credits available working on the micro credentialing for it as well right now. Um, it, it's self paced some teachers really dedicate they can get through it in a couple months others and in some school districts I recommend they take two years to go through it. And and at this point, who is it that ends up taking um, the, the course? Is it um, people who are doing it because they, they need to get some professional development uh, uh, credit and this is one of the options or who ends up to, who do you end up reaching? Well, it's different camps. We have our individual teachers who are seeking professional development. They're curious, they want to know. They've heard, heard about top 10 tools, so they enroll and take it independent of uh, uh, independently. Um, there are schools that will sign on. So by, by the way, the top 10 tools goes up all the way up through grade six. So each of the modules, which I call tools, that was another one of my very purposeful uh, names I chose because a tool is something very familiar to a teacher. Um, so, Oh, I lost my train of thought. Goes up to ten tools. What was that, Molly? Help me Goes out. Goes up to sixth grade. Goes up to sixth grade, right? So in each of the modules, I present the the foundation, the knowledge, the research. This is why this is important. And then there are tracks of the, of videos that teachers can watch, either for grades K one and two or three, or and then all the way up to six. So my hope is, if it is being viewed in a school, that there will be this vertical alignment across grades. So the teachers are talking the same vocabulary. Teachers are teaching only expanding and deepening how they approach the topic as the years go on. So each teacher is building on what the previous teacher had taught. That's, of course, um, if, if students stay in the same school, that would be something that they would, would experience. So then we also have uh, teachers in the course who are um, required to take the course. And these, there are some state initiatives that have required all teachers. And those are the least of, of the groups of teachers taking the course. Those are the least involved for the most part, not all teachers, but several. That's where we run into some real challenges with being charged to uh, present this professional development because of the really 
valid goals the state has for their teachers to gain this knowledge, but the teachers are being required and they just want to get through it as fast as they can and there's very little learning that takes place. That is, that is probably the greatest challenge for me right now um, is how to engage them in a meaningful way when it's not something they really wanted to do in the first place. I guess, so, you know, in the abstract, I think, well, teachers want to have things that knowledge that's going to be helpful to them and it'll help them succeed. And, you know, um, they need to incentives. I don't know how it works locally, it varies, but you know, it, it can't, it's not coercive and it's not remedial. It's look, there's things that really we know that you, 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 that, that you can learn about that will be helpful. And um, it's not punitive, it's, it's, it's advancement. And if we do it well, it will actually have an impact on what happens in their classroom with their kids. Yeah. So um, I, I, I've said this before, I think the narrative around, you know, reforming teacher education and, and, and continuing education really needs to change because if we don't do it right, it sounds like you don't know what you're doing. You need to, you never learned this stuff. You need to go back to school. And yeah. I feel like that's not, that's not the idea. The idea is things change, people learn new things. We're all struggling with to figure out what to do with certain kids who really have been hard to reach for a long time. We all wanna figure out ways to do things better. It's not like anybody's got the magic key. And, but we have learned more. And so it's not meant to be uh, undercutting the integrity of the individual to say, hey, here's something that you can, if you go through this course, you're gonna learn things that are gonna be really helpful. And I, then it's incumbent on us to explain things well, connect up to the teachers' at con immediate concerns and, and that wherever the teachers are at, uh, when they start the, a course like yours, for example, uh, I feel like we need to do it well. If we do it poorly, then yeah, it, it's, yeah. it's kind of a drag. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, even when it's done well, I think that there, what is the, um, the drive and so that's the challenge to build into my course is this help teachers understand this, this is how, how does this fit with what you know and are doing and what will you do differently tomorrow? What will be your focus in a, to build a language rich classroom? How will you bring in Charles Perfetti's work so that when you teach vocabulary, you attend to the phonology and the orthographic and build this multiple context application of the yeah. word yeah. Um, to, to, to build that flexibility with meaning. I mean, yeah. even if teachers take one nugget out of 45 hours of, of work, one nugget, and that helps build their a strength that they can see a result in their student growth, then that's a good thing. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. How I think we're gonna have some questions from the floor and from the cat, but can I ask um, how, so what is the inter intersection between what you're um, telling people 
or what I would tell people about, you know, certain basic research findings that are relevant to every classroom and every kid. Um, how do you, how does that connect with the curricula that people are using? Typically there'll be some yeah. cur commercial curricula in the classroom yeah. and they have their own uh, ways of doing things. How That's do you really connect good. with that? That's a really, really good question. And certainly one I considered when I created this course because I know that a lot of teachers have no curriculum and they're cre we're creating their own lessons and others have semi-good curriculum and it's just all over the board, right? What they mm -hmm. have to work with. So what, we, what I've done is I purposefully, especially in the, um, uh, the decoding and encoding uh, unit, uh, when it gets to the planning section, which is the fourth section in uh, part in each of the tools, after the knowledge has been presented, after they've seen it in action, and then there's the planning. Okay, so what are you going to do with this now? And I guide teachers to consider, plan how they're going to use this information in their own teaching. And I created two tracks. One, if you have a reading program, go here to plan. If you do not have a reading program or you are not sure if your reading program provides what you need, here's where I want you to go to plan. And then I provide for each um, group of teachers a way to consider, kind of guiding them to consider their own materials they have and what they can do to, to, uh, uh, to push things out to, to work things out right thank mm -hmm. you and um what i usually find is teachers become very interested in a program that is going to help them do this yeah and yeah. especially if it's in a school or a district where they don't start out with a program these teachers they go crazy it's like we need we need this what program should we get we need help putting this into place in my classroom so there's kind of an awakening of uh, the awareness that there are programs out there that can really help me do this. Yeah. And um, so. Um, and also, I think that a program, in many cases, a well-written program is going to teach a teacher how to teach this. There's been a lot of anti-script um, information out there because many of the uh, reading programs appear very scripted and it takes the individual teacher's role in the teaching appears to take that out of it. But I think any of us who have taught a explicit systematic program that contained some script, we realized after we became familiar with it, we took it on as our own and we adapted it in our efforts to, to be explicit and systematic in our instruction. So I, there was some conversation in Spell Talk long while back about this, how perhaps it's the reading program that can eventually teach us how to teach explicitly and systematically, what that looks like and sounds like. Yes, we'd like to have that stuff coordinated better and integrated better. Uh, what teachers are told, the materials that they're using, the support materials that they can get on their own, kind of all pulling in the same direction would be great. Um, what do you think the big issues are that we really um, need, that need a lot more focus and maybe ones that lead, need less focus? 
So we're agreed that teachers really will benefit from having additional knowledge in about the things that um, that you cover. Um, and but um, life goes on. People are their kids are in school now or virtually in school, and and teachers have to make decisions about what to teach um, their kids this year. So. Yeah. Right. What kinds of things do you think we need to put more emphasis on and what kinds of things do you think we should be backing off from? Can, can you say things about um, that kind of, um, those kinds of considerations? Yeah, uh, I think that fits in really well into a conversation about what is what is the first thing teachers tend to do when they're faced with a problem? And in my experience, a lot of teachers will look for an activity. They will look for something they can put, they can engage the kids in to uh, keep them busy maybe. Uh, certainly having activities, what that means is it's a practice a practice um, opportunity for students to build a, a strong learning from what you have taught. So I, what, I, what I try to emphasize with teachers is find just a few good, powerful routines that you can use over and over again by updating them or implementing or bringing in what you are teaching the student. For example, I call them sound spelling boxes or phoneme graphing mapping. Okay, that's a, that's a really powerful activity. You, can, you don't need 500 activities. You can use that and you can make it look a little different each time. You can do it on a plastic sheet protector with a dry erase marker. You can do it on a solo plate that you've used, uh, that you've drawn with a permanent marker, the little uh, sound boxes that the children will spell the words in. Um, you can, uh, you know, th there's multiple ways you can present that same very useful and effective tool to provide the practice. Yeah. So that, that's one of the ways to take this load off of teachers that they don't need a gazillion activities, but what are the few very powerful activities that we can use over and over? And you know what? The kids don't get tired of them. If well, they're effective, the kids use the, the oh yeah, okay, is that what we're doing now? We did this last week and I liked it and I learned and you know, it was okay. And how do we, the teacher approach that of course too with our students, but that's just one of my thoughts. Um, and I know it's heavy in a lot of teachers' minds right now after the pandemic. Uh, I mean, there isn't a teacher blog or book we open or article that doesn't point out to us our kids have lost a lot of learning time, which we know. And uh, certainly there are some wonderful voices out there uh, providing assistance and help for teachers as we engage in that sense of urgency in our classrooms. Yeah. I, I think one one of the things that you comes up here is um, both in terms of you know instruction a classroom activity under, under normal typical circumstances and also taking into account the 
loss of time or loss of opportunities because of the pandemic uh, and trying to over make up for lost time. Um, you know, learning takes place over a lot of different experiences. And uh, the things that are relevant to early becoming a reader, things like knowing words, being able to recognize words, being able to pronounce them, understanding them from speech, knowing different things about them, how they fit in sentences, all those things that we come to learn about words, um, they're not learned like as a list of things you memorize. They are a bunch of intercorrelated sorts of things that kids build up over many, many, many experiences. And one of the things that comes up is, does the kid have enough learning opportunities? You know, there's this concept of um, inequalities, inequities in terms of opportunities to learn, associated, which are real. But there's also this question of a sufficient learning opportunities. Are there enough situations, conditions that have been set up, either explicit instruction or other kinds of activities about which the kid can get feedback uh, that give the kids sufficient opportunities to learn the things that they need to get learn to get to where we want them to get. Yeah. I, I, it, it's a question of time. It's a question of structuring activities and, 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 and materials so that you get the most bang out of every, every moment. Um, but about uh, most benefit. But uh, I, I have a concern that there isn't enough, and, and this obviously looms large in the context of the pandemic, where not only are we trying to help the kids advance, uh, we're trying to catch up, uh, uh, get them back to, to where they were uh, in some cases. So uh, time is precious. And uh, I worry about there not being enough time for kids to learn what they need to learn. And I'm thinking, one of the things Julie and I say in this paper, uh, we need to rethink the standard trajectories for learning to read. You know, certain things have to be done by the end of third grade, and then we're going to switch into this other kind of mode of doing things. And um, kids need varying amounts of time to achieve, get to certain places for a variety of reasons, whether it's a pandemic or something, some other, something else. Uh, I'm, I'm more concerned that the kid get what they need. Yeah. And have the rather than again by the end of second grade, yeah, you know, exactly. That will be the real challenge is that there's a kind of a speeding up, but are we giving the children the time they need to develop the auto the, the strength of automaticity with the application of the skills? Yes, oh, no, so, it, takes, it takes practice before we we finish. And I see we're getting close to end time, Molly. I know you, you there might be some comments, but one of the questions that um you posed when we were planning this today was we've heard from so many people that um, want to start getting into the science of reading, how to do it, how do they begin? And I gave that some thought and I think that it starts with finding a trusted, you know, evidence-based course and a good teacher, okay? So the person who presents that information and how they present it, a good teacher, because we are learners. Teachers are learners, just like our students, and we need explicit and systematic instruction as well. And then find a friend or a colleague to study with you, because having someone to collaborate, to share your learning, to ask questions, to work through this information is really important. So when I design uh, professional development, I start with 
a topic that has some familiarity. So if the course you choose or the professional development you choose to take doesn't seem familiar to you, you know, hang, hang in there because you will be making connections to your own learning and to your students' learning. And it takes a lot of years to build an appreciation for this information and to build upon what you already know and be prepared to make changes. There no, I feel like we, we have an audience of people who are probably going, you know, oh my goodness, because uh, I suppose it's a period of years if it starts, for example, when a person is still a pre-service, uh, in pre-service, in, uh, in, their, in their coursework to become a teacher. I mean, if we can begin a little bit earlier, for example, I, I think everybody should have a course in basic like linguistics 101, all this stuff about like how language works and different layers and people speak differently and what's bilingualism and how does things develop and what needs to be taught and all that stuff is taught in, in linguistics, introductory you know, survey courses of linguistics cover that material and everyone loves it. You know, people love language and, and all these um, things about how it's done in different countries and cultures and so on. If that's a lot to ask of somebody who's got a job, <laughs> but it's it's something that can be worked into an undergraduate education really easily, you know? Uh, yeah. so, so I guess what I'm saying is, yeah, we should be, it may take several years and that sounds oppressive, but not if you're kind of starting out and it's a continuing process and, and, and there are more and more materials for people to draw on. See, here's the thing that I need to be able to point people to those reliable sources. So when I look at your materials, I say, no, no, I can point people to those materials. It's not that I wouldn't change any of it. I mean, you're going to change it, right? It's something, it's a lively, it's a, it's a, it's a thing that's lively. And, and, and also we do learn new things and we learn what we've overlooked or what we've, we learn to adjust things. We've overemphasized this, you know, things change. But uh, so I can point people to your materials uh, and, and uh, maybe they could or do it. When you do point them to my materials, know that the, um, components of reading are presented in what appear to be in uh, separate from each other, but the well-orchestrated instruction requires a synthesis and an integration of those components. It totally so does. In the presentation of this material, yes, we start with looking at the component as a researcher would. This is what the component is and what it means and why it's important to teach it. And when you teach it, know that it requires the integration of more than one component for the reading brain to, tr to truly understand, to grasp and to learn from your instruction. And this is what it looks like. We've got to emphasize that more for sure. That's really important. Um, Let's do a couple, just a couple questions. My cat has to some comments and um, there are a couple of things that people have had to say. Um, related to this um, issue of like how to get involved and where to start, somebody was asking about if you have any suggestions for like approaching a curriculum coordinator. Like if you wanted to maybe try to get not just a buddy, but like the school on board, like do you have any suggestions? I know this is a thing we get questions about a lot of like, how do we change the minds of the people who are making the decisions or 
introduce them to the science if we've heard about it? Well, it's the squeaky wheel syndrome, I think. <laughs> the squeaky wheel in the district, uh, we uh, opening the eyes, creating the awareness. Um, need, there has to be a perceived need. Mm -hmm. So what you might start is looking at student data. What does our student sure. data look like? And it's not looking very good. There, we need to make some changes. And here's here's some a place we could look. We could look at our professional development, all coming on board in the same way, in the same place, same um, professional development to build our understanding to a deeper level. Because there's something we need to change to help our kids progress. That would be one of the first things that comes to my mind. And I think there are areas where that's happening. Um, you know, one of the things that's happened because of the publicity over quote unquote science of reading and instruction, uh, the, the, the fuss that's been stirred up is sufficient to, to, I think, cause people to look, really take seriously, look, we're not reaching some children and, and we can't be satisfied just because we're reaching kids who are gonna learn to read no matter, regardless of what we did in the classroom, because they come from backgrounds where they're, they're, they can do that. Uh, so I, I do think that we have an opportunity here. I, I am concerned that if it's tough, I think your materials enter the issues at a very nice level. You can always get more detailed, but you know, they're not simplistic. And I, I, Mark, I, what, what you don't know is that in my course for the teachers who want to go more deeply, yeah, there, there are resources galore. Indeed. So read more about this and yeah. the actual research, link to the actual research articles are there or more simplified articles for some teachers. Yeah. So there's, a, there's the ability for a teacher to, um, to individualize for them too, a level yeah. that they're comfortable with. I like that. Have, have you, we got more questions? Yeah, well, somebody was saying related to this, that this is, have you, have you talked to, have you thought about approaching any um, teacher prep programs as, as being this kind of a, using your course in their training? Like getting back to the beginning teachers? It would be such an amazing way for a college of ed to get a hold of this presentation. And I've been working on this since years and years ago when Louisa Motz and I wrote Foundations for Literacy and Instruction as one of the letters modules. I wrote really clear notes for each of the presentation slides and to go with the book so that colleges of education professors would, would be able to learn this right along with their students as they presented it. Well, I don't think it was really used much. Um, that was a long time ago, but now there's much more demand. So mm -hmm. for, I haven't approached the colleges of education necessarily, they've approached me. They should, I, I one would like to direct them towards you. Uh, uh, I think the other thing is making it easier for teachers to take the courses, uh, making it not a financial burden and finding the, uh, the, 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 the other sources, perhaps philanthropy or some, some combination of philanthropy and and um, and uh, education, you know, the educational establishment um, uh, to make it possible for people to take the courses and, and get the training that they need without it being a financial burden. 
Yeah, that's a real concern of mine, always has been um, that this is made available and we certainly, I, I really work hard to make it. I, I know, and, and just to make it wider. My expenses into, in, you know, into account, it's, it's not an inexpensive deal running a platform LMS. There are a lot of hidden, hidden costs, but it is really important to me as well to make it um, financially Yes, uh, feasible for teachers. I, I didn't want to, that to sound at all like uh, any any implied or other but criticism of you who have put together this incredible resource, as far as I can tell, you know, piecing it together without a huge amount of financial support. And so, you know, keeping it running, updating it and so on, having it be as professional as it is, integrating the videos and the other stuff, it, it is not trivial. Well, Mark's saying is I, you should get money. Like the philanthropists should be paying you so that more teachers can take it. Like I, I want more people to go into the field and to, to get the good best training and to, um, to um, whatever you know stage in their careers and um and have people pay for it i think that 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 we will attract people who are dedicated and really want to pursue things not that we don't already but we will attract more we have teacher shortages after all uh i i think it would be just such an incredible attraction if we could subsidize uh the education and the continuing education of top teachers and um, well, and it's just uh, so unfair that they've already paid for an education, and now you're asking them to pay for more education. <laughs> well, but, there may may be ways to try to subsidize that. And that would be a great thing to do. Have we got more stuff from the field? Uh, I think the only other I think Deb spoke to a question about making sure that they it's clear that the program is based in evidence. It's clear that Deb is like got the research there, so that you can point that out to if you're trying to promote this to somebody else, that, that this is a program that is based in the evidence. Um, I think that, that was, those were the main questions that we had, but yeah. Well, that sounds pretty good to me. We really appreciate you chatting with us. Any last thoughts, um, Deb? Can we do this? We can do this. And with the growing interest right now, those of us who have been trying to spark an interest um, to light a fire, to light, it's been a little candle out here <laughs> and it's, it's growing. It has grown and the interest in evidence-based practice that is based in the science, um, conceptual and procedural, both coming together, integrated components, can only happen from a deep platform of understanding. Um, and we're continually growing. I mean, all of us are continually learning. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's the way it is. If you're a reading teacher, it's gonna be a lifelong uh, work of, of building this knowledge, conceptual knowledge and procedural knowledge in our classrooms. And we can do it. We can do this. I know we can. And I think we can continue figuring out ways to be clearer about uh, how to th think about things and absorb them. And, uh, you know, it's not just the continued lifelong learners, it's lifelong educators to, who are trying to, you know, yeah. um, help, help out. And, Initiate and, change, yeah. yeah. Takes the well, uh, whole community. Yeah. 
Well, thanks a lot. We, we really appreciate it. It's been great talking to you. Oh, it was just so lovely being here. And it means so much that uh, you asked me to participate in your Sunday chat session. And I just loved being able to share with you and have this conversation and all the viewers and people who sat in. I, I hope people really um, there are get lots to of nice benefit from your experience and knowledge. Yeah. Okay, thank, thank you, everyone. Have a wonderful rest of your Sunday. Yes. Come back next Sunday. We're talking to Margaret Goldberg about how to think about your curriculum. If you've got a curriculum you have to use, what are you going to do? So we'll keep be having these conversations. And she is amazing. She's one of the most brilliant people out there right now, helping make this bridge mm -hmm. from. Absolutely. From, uh, yeah. And she's teaching first grade this year. I know. I know. I'll, I'll definitely be there. Okay. All right. Look forward to it. All right. Everyone. Bye, everybody. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this reading meeting recording. You can find more information about past and future reading meetings on our website. We hope you'll join us for future meetings. Thank you.